My name is Ross Anderson. I'm a teaching pastor here at Alpine Church. It's great to be up in Brigham with you guys. Thank you, by the way, to our worship team. Isn't, was that so encouraging to be led into the presence of God this morning? And, and thank you, for you guys, for your service to us. Now, we're studying in the Gospel of Mark. And we've come to the, nearly to the end, really to the end of chapter 12. Feels like we've been in chapter 12 for quite a long time, right? Um, but there's so much going on because Jesus is in the final week of his life. He's in Jerusalem, all the things leading up to the cross, and all the things that he, he really needs to say in that final moment. But today, as we're looking at, excuse me, as we're looking at chapter 12, starting in verse 35, so if you find that in your Bible or in your Bible app, or we have, we'll have the verses up on the screen as well. But today what Jesus is talking about is what is the nature of a genuine life-transforming faith. And he's going to raise a negative example of that to illustrate that. And he's going to then raise, by contrast, a positive example to illustrate that. The negative side, he's going to, looking around, he's at the temple, and he's looking around and seeing all these religious leaders that are in that environment, in that space. And he's thinking about some of them the religious leaders of Judaism who, who really lacked an authentic faith. Even though they were religious, even though they were up there, you know, they just lacked something real going on. And then later on, we'll see he looks around at some of the lowliest people in that society, some of the forgotten, the ones who just didn't have anything much in the world since going for them, or the ones who demonstrated the reality, the authenticity of a faith. And so his teaching is going to help us I'm behind. Here we go. Oh, his teaching is going to help us to answer this is a fundamental question today. Here's our question today. How do you spot a fraud? And by that, I'm not talking about people who send you those emails that they're phishing, you know, to try to get your bank account information or your credit card, stuff like that. You know, but I'm following the lead of Jesus in this passage, which focuses on you might call religious fraud. How do we recognize religious fraud? And why does that matter for us? And so let me give you some examples historically, maybe from our own contemporary age. So historically, uh, I thought of Pope Leo. Oops, Pope Leo, come back. Pope Leo X, he was from the 16th century, and Pope Leo set up a system to sell pardon for sins. He called it indulgences, and if you bought an indulgence, then the time that you spent in purgatory after you died, then they said it would be reduced. Um, that, that somebody said had a had a, a saying. They said when the when the coin in the kettle clangs, then someone escapes from purgatory. And so th that was the idea that he used. It. it wasn't just to help people. You know, purgatory isn't a biblical idea, by the way. But it wasn't just to help these people. But he's using the sale of indulgences to finance the building of this massive incredible, uh, opulent building that St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Well, in 1517, a German friar named Martin Luther publicly questioned the Pope's authority to grant indulgences. Luther said, that, that guy's a fraud. And then more recently, I heard about a woman named Joanna Southcott. This was new to me, but she claimed to have a series of spiritual visions or divine revelations that came from God, she said, that would provide people with insight into the second coming of Christ. 
And she also claimed to have this box of what she called sealed prophecies that would be opened and something amazing would be revealed at some specific future date. One of her prophecies was that she would give birth to a character that she called the Shiloh, some kind of a messianic figure who would maybe pave the way for the coming of Christ. Well, she died in 1814 without ever giving birth, so so much for that. That sealed box of prophecies was finally opened in 1927, and there were various writings and papers of different kinds, but none of the miraculous predictions that her followers had come to expect. So, really... You have to say she was a, a religious fraud. Now, we can give you probably a, a ton of examples from our own day, people that would be from more familiar to you than Joanna Southcott. So how about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, who formed the PTL Club in the 70s? Maybe if you're younger, you don't remember. Maybe you saw the movie a couple of years ago about Tammy Faye. But they developed this huge following for this Christian-themed television program they created a theme park, because in America, that's what you do, right? They created a theme park called Heritage USA that was supposed to be a Christian-themed resort. But scandal, oh, they, they raised a lot of money on, on TV. They're like always pumping people for money and donations. But the scandal hit when it was revealed that, that they misappropriated funds and that they used the donations of, of probably a lot of just probably poor people who were giving in. They used those donations on their luxurious lifestyles. And so we've all seen popular Christian leaders who have been exposed as frauds. It's kind of hard to take, right? It makes you a little bit cynical. But I want to look more closely at what Jesus has to say because what Jesus says doesn't really help my cynicism. It, it makes me more careful, but it also gives me a sense of what to look for that's authentic, that's real in, in who, the people who are going to claim to lead. So I want to see what he has to say. So in verse 35... Again, Jesus is teaching people in the temple. He's around the temple courts, the center of life in Jerusalem. And what we'll see is he, he points out two negative traits that mark fraudulent faith. And then he comes around and brings us back to one positive trait that marks authentic faith. Okay, so, so number one, I want to talk about celebrity. You can see that on the, on the, on the left there. That's our outline the first warning sign of fraud is celebrity. Now, not every celebrity is a fraud. I want to say that for sure. Not everybody who's famous is, is going to be a fraud. But there seems to be a, like a correlation because it seems like most people who want to perpetrate a fraud are going to pursue fame. They're going to pursue influence in their life. So fame does not always lead to corruption for sure. But, but, but again, we want to be careful about that correlation. And so in Mark's gospel... By now, we've seen Jesus clash with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, a bunch of times, right? He's, these are the established leaders of Old Testament law and the Jewish regulations, and they're the members of the religious elite. They controlled the temple. They ruled Jewish religious life. And in particular, we're looking at what are called the teachers of religious law. It's like a subset of these leaders. In particular, those were learned men who, whose duty was to preserve, to study, to interpret the law of Moses, to teach the law of Moses to the next generation. And they were highly respected members of society. They held great authority in the minds of the people who were around and because of their knowledge, because of their dedication, and because of their at least appearance of keeping God's law. 
in all of its details. And so I wanted to just give you a, an idea of the position that these Jewish leaders held in that society. So I want to, let's think about famous religious leaders today. In the evangelical world, it's kind of our religious world we're part of. Depending on your generation, you might think of people, there's a million names, right? You might think of people like Tony Evans or John Piper or Priscilla Shirer or Greg Laurie or, or if you went into the entertainment world or the, the music world, you might think of a guy like Lecrae or somebody like that. Very, very famous, very popular in our, in our circles. I think of the current Pope. Pope Francis, very popular around the world. Here in Utah, I think of the LDS general authorities. They're so well-loved and highly respected by their followers. I think, I, I'm not saying that, I don't know what Jesus would say to any of those contemporary leaders. I'm not saying they're frauds necessarily at all. But I want to connect the dots for you to see the kind of role that these Jewish religious leaders that Jesus is going to call out, what the role they had was in their society. Because he had some very scathing words for them about how they handled their popularity. Again, not all of them were frauds, but some of them clearly were. So Jesus is looking around at all the religious leaders who are walking through the temple that day, and he talks to the crowds about the, their prominence in Judaism. Here in, in verse 38, Jesus also taught, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. So Jesus opens with this, this warning. It's like a shot. He says, beware of, the, of these teachers of religious law. Man, that got everybody's attention because these people were so respected in that society. Jesus says, look out for them. It's like if Jesus showed up here saying, you know, watch out for those Alpine church pastors. Because when you're official representative of respectable religion, that gives you some status. That's true today as much as it was back then. That sets you up to be highly honored in that particular religious system. It puts you sometimes beyond scrutiny or beyond questioning. And yet for many of those religious leaders, their piety, Jesus is going to tell us, was a fraud. They like to parade around in, in clothing that marked them off as unique and special. They love to make people think of them a certain way, so they made visible expressions um, they made visible expressions of religion just to impress people, like they praying long and elaborate prayers to sound holy. And so here's the warning. Jesus says these people may look pious. They may look respectable. There's something else going on beneath the surface. And what he points his finger at is how much they love honor and adulation. How much they love people fawning over them. And, and they love to sit where, where they can ever be seen by everybody. They love the adulation. They love, they love just this, this uh, being in the center of the spotlight so much. So Jesus is warning not, not just so much about religious leaders and teachers who are famous, but about those who love to be famous, those who want to be famous. And think about it. We live in a celebrity-oriented culture. How many TV shows, how many magazines are there that want to keep us up to date on what's happening in the life of celebrities? Because we, we assume in our culture that, that famous equals better, right? And we thought about that, that somehow famous equals more believable. And so we're all tempted to, to love and to follow famous religious leaders. 
But we, he's, Jesus is saying, look, we need to be careful about who we follow, about who we elevate. A person can be very popular, can be very prominent. Doesn't mean we know anything at all about how authentic their faith is, their life, their character. And part of the warning, I think, is about us just as much as it is about them. That we're not tempted to follow leaders just because of their image, just because of their fame. When we don't know a leader well enough to know if he or she can actually be trusted. And then, of course, then if you want to follow that train of thought, the next application would be this. We want to beware when we start to have fame. Maybe you have a little bit of fame, you know. Maybe that's why we gra- gravitate toward those famous people. Because we feel like some of their fame overflows to us, you know. We, we want to bask in the reflected glory. And some of us might also have a little bit of fame. You know, maybe you're known in, in, the, in the church for a certain talent that you have, a certain ability that you have. Or maybe you've been around long enough that you've become like a pillar in the church. And so people notice you. and People treat you with some measure of respect. It's not, it's not wrong. But the, here's the question is, does that start to change how you see yourself? There's nothing wrong with fame. There's nothing wrong with being well-known or being respected. The issue is whether or not you want fame, whether you're pursuing fame. And what happens when you get a little bit of fame? Jesus is saying, don't love fame more than you love God. Don't love the opinion of other people more than you care about God's opinion. Don't love celebrities more than you love God. Because when you think about what fame can do to people, then that leads us to the next concern. There's a second level of concern in Jesus' warning that is in a lot of ways it's more subtle, but it's probably more serious as well. He's talking about hypocrisy. Because when you think about spiritual fraud, you think about it, how easily a gap can develop between outward religious activity and real obedience to God. How much can, between what it looks like you're doing and everything you're engaged in that people can see and what people can't see and what's going on inside your heart. And that applies to anybody who claims to follow God, whether you're famous or not. But here's the thing. In any religious culture, people notice and admire stuff that they can see. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But it often creates this chasm between the outside and the inside. Because we want people to like us, right? We want people to respect us. And so we will learn what people will praise and what people will reward in our particular culture. And what happens then is that, that it can then become all about the outward activity and the outward image because that's where we get the feedback from. So cycling now back to verse 40, Jesus continues talking about this, talking about these religious leaders. He says, yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. So you have these prominent religious leaders. They're admired by everybody. But because of their outward religious activity, that's why they've got the fame they've got. But Jesus, look, they're not doing what honors God. And he picks a particular issue, one probably among many. He says they're shamelessly cheating widows out of their property. 
So here's the thing. Let me give you the scenario here. The teachers of the law were not allowed to be paid for their services. And so there's two possible scenarios that Jesus is talking about here. One is, is leaders who were sponging off of wealthy widows that they've tried to create these, a patronage or a, or a benefactor-type relationship by like kissing up to some widow who had a lot of resources. Another possibility is that they were dishonestly managing a widow's estate because in that culture, widows did not manage their own affairs. And so they would have to trust their finances to someone else, and it was probably going to be a teacher of religious law because of their reputation. And so you have greedy religious leaders who are preying on wealthy widows. In a sense, they're becoming religious con men. Now, by the way, abusing widows was strictly denounced in the Old Testament law, which is ironic because that's the very law that these teachers of the religious law, they claim to hold dear and to really want to make sense of. So you see that in Isaiah chapter 10. What sorrow awaits the unjust judges and those who issue unfair laws They deprive the poor of justice and deny the rights of the needy among my people. They prey on widows and take advantage of orphans. And the next verses go on, and Isaiah next go on to talk about God's judgment on those leaders. And so this, this canyon begins to develop between the outward show of religion versus the commitment to really what matters ultimately to God. So here's the takeaway. I think for us, first of all, don't trust a religious leader or a teacher just because of their position, just because of their fame. Don't trust me just because I have the title pastor or just because I published books or whatever it might be. You have to know a leader's integrity. But you know what? It's not just religious leaders who fall prey to hypocrisy. Any of us can get there. And so I want you to realize that in the Christian life, it's not about your reputation. It's about your character. There's a difference, right? Reputation is what people think of you. Character is what you really are. Jesus had a terrible reputation. People, a lot of people against him. We've seen that in Mark's gospel now for 12 chapters. People against Jesus. People told all kinds of things about Jesus. He had a terrible reputation, but he had a perfect character. But many of these Jewish leaders had a great reputation. But Jesus is revealing the heart of their actual character The greed, the power, the exploitation of the weak with no regard for justice. And so here's what I think we need to understand. That in the end of the day, when we all stand before God, he's not going to ask us what people thought of us. He's not going to ask you how many people you impressed with your religiousness. But he's going to ask us how we honored him. And how we acted when nobody was looking. He's going to ask us about our thoughts and our attitudes, and our motives. So there's the warning. Jesus gives a warning, but on the other hand, now he flips and gives this other example that's an encouragement to us. He says, this is the direction. He says, I don't want you to go this direction. He says, here's the direction that I would like you to go. He's going to talk about generosity. He's still the temple, but in verse 43, you notice there's a shift that takes place. He starts talking to the disciples instead of the crowds. He's been talking to the public crowds, people gathered around. In verse 43, he starts talking to his disciples. And it's a shift there, but it still connects us to what we just read in a couple of ways. Number one is there's still a lot of prominent people in view walking around the temple courts, and they're doing certain things. And and then secondly, it connects because the center of Jesus' attention is a widow. 
He's been talking about widows. And he says, oh, here's a widow right here. I want to point out something to you about her. And so he's still talking about authentic faith. And so while the faith of many of these Jewish leaders was really a sham, Jesus points us to the, this widow as an example of the real deal. In verse 41 through 44, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. So the Old Testament law actually called for the people of Israel to pay tithes. And we talked about tithes. We talked about that at the beginning of October, about a month ago. But the tithes were given for the support of the priestly class. They were given for the operation of the temple. They were given for uh, the society to take care of the poor. Originally, the tithes would be brought in crops or in produce because it was an agricultural society. But as more and more people moved to the cities and there's less people involved in agriculture, they now allowed currency, coinage, to be given for the tithe. And so there in the temple courtyard where they're sitting, the the Jewish leaders had erected 13 wooden boxes to receive offerings. And each of these trumpet-shaped, each of them had a a trumpet-shaped Bronze funnel. So right, we have the offering box out there, and you saw it coming in, you know, maybe you used it. Imagine that box with like a, a metal funnel on top made of bronze um, that kind of collects the coins. You can just toss the coin, and it kind of hits the funnel and kind of winds down and ends up in the box, right? And so because the, those trumpet things were metal on top, then they would make noise when the coinage fell in. The more coinage, the larger the coins, the more noise it would make. So, you know, just think what effect that has on people's pride. Well, that day, many rich people put in large sums. But this one widow, who was very poor, she threw in what Jesus calls two small coins. Let me explain. Because the coin that he's referring to to there was one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was a main coin the coin that was equal to a day's wages, a, a laborer's wages for the day, uh, for the, uh, day was a denarius. And the, this, these, these coins that she threw in were one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And so I figured out like what that might mean today. So in Utah, the minimum wage is like seven twenty-five, and if you worked an eight-hour day, your day's labor for a lowest level would be fifty-eight dollars. You know less taxes and all that stuff. And so one sixty-fourth of that is is ninety-one cents. So she put in two of those coins, a dollar eighty-two. So this widow put this widow put under two dollars in the offering box. There's a lot of people giving a lot of money. And Jesus says, look, she gave more than everybody else. Wait, do the math, right? But he means not more in raw numbers. But her more was that she gave a far higher proportion and made a far greater sacrifice because she didn't give out of her surplus like mo- you know, most people do. But she gave out of her need. 
And Jesus points that out as an expression of authentic faith because it expresses two particular things. Number one, it expresses how much God was worth to her. That God is more important than money. And then the second thing it expressed was that she understood that God would be faithful to her, that God was faithful. That, because when you give sacrificially like that, it requires real trust in God's care and in God's provision. That God's going to take care of me if I make a sacrifice for him. And so we're talking still about authentic faith. What does that look like? And we've seen the negative example of hypocrisy and, and, and celebrity. But here we see the positive example, generosity. And here's the lessons that come out of it. Generosity, then, is, can be part of a genuine response to God. It can be part of the real deal of a person's true faith. If you remember that generosity isn't about what anybody thinks about you. you know, in all my years of being a pastor... One of the things I've noticed is, you know, I've had, I've, I've, I've kind of l- talked to a lot of people over the years and learned um, that some of the very most generous givers are people that nobody had any idea. And nobody even knew they even could. And that's authentic because it recognizes there's really only one opinion that matters. There's really only one opinion. There's no temptation to do it for show. Don't care what other people think. But then the second thing to remember as we assess authentic faith is that generosity, Jesus says, is not measured by the size of the gift, but by the size of the sacrifice. And that's how I know it's for real. That's how I know my, my faith in God and my connection with God is for real. Because it, it meant something to me enough that it wasn't just like, oh, you know, it wasn't skimming off the surface. Now, last month, I know this raises a ton of questions, right, to talk about giving um, in our culture today. And last month I said we talked in depth about this um, in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. So if you have more questions about the topic, you know, Mike or I, we'd be happy to talk to you about it. But I also encourage you to go back and look up the materials on Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. You can find them at pursuegod.org if you really want to like explore more than I have time to say today about generosity. But Jesus says, okay, this is a positive attribute. This is a measure, or can be a measure, of genuine faith. So, from our passage, we learn that there's always going to be religious frauds out there. And so we want to be aware. We want to be discerning about that. I want to encourage you to be careful who you believe, who you trust, who you follow. Now, I don't want you to be completely cynical that you, never, that you never find somebody that's real and authentic and you decide you can follow them. That'd be an extreme, right? But I want you to be careful about that. In our culture today, there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of popular teachers and popular persons out there that we should not be following. But I don't want to just think about the spiritual fraud or religious fraud that's out there. Um, I think there's a question that we all need to consider to, to bring it home into our own backyard just a little bit more, and that is, are you a spiritual fraud? What's the authenticity of your relationship with God? Now, to be honest, we all fall into fraud at times. It's, it's not hard to go there, because we want to be liked. We want to be respected. So it makes it easy to shortcut the hard work of character development and developing and focusing on the inner person. Because what I do when nobody's looking 
doesn't you know, give me any, any props. So it's easy to fall into that. And you know, I think if, if you find that you're way too interested in Christian celebrities, that might be a symptom of this. Or if you're way too interested in your own spiritual reputation, what people think of you, then I, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Or maybe you're outwardly or you're visibly very religious, but you're not always honoring God in the daily decisions that happen, you know, Monday through Saturday and the things that are part of the fabric of your life that nobody sees. Nobody, I don't know, let's think about, what about the generosity? I thought about this right now, just like maybe we like the impression of being generous more than we like the actual sacrifice of being generous. That would be a warning sign. Again, nobody's going to be able to see beyond the religious image, but God knows the heart. Now, what I want to understand today, I want, to, I want you to understand that this is a positive moment for us. So I'm not, I'm not trying to rake you over the coals or anything like that. Because Jesus welcomes our authenticity. Jesus brings us up because he welcomes our authenticity. And he encourages us. He empowers us to move from hypocrisy to humility. I want you to think about it like this. When Jesus, in a few days, in the text of Mark, Jesus is going to go to the cross. And what happens when he dies on the cross? He gives up his life in our place to pay for our sin, to pay for all the ways that we fall short of God, to, to say, you know what, you don't have to measure up to God. You don't have to measure up to religious requirements to be accepted by God. And so on the cross, Jesus is saying that his grace is unconditional. He loves you just the way you are as you come to him. And he's going to accept you with open arms. And to me, as I think about religious fraud, I find that that is the most powerful encouragement in my life ever that I've ever experienced to get real, to be authentic, to be open. Because I know that I'm secure in God's love for me. I know that I have his approval not because I'm so holy or because I've lived up to so much, but because of what Jesus did for me, that God welcomes me in. In spite of all my garbage, in spite of my phoniness, in spite of the stuff that I've done that, that doesn't honor him. Because when I put my trust in Jesus, I say, you know what, he, that, that, then his sacrifice on the cross becomes applied to me. And so I can come to him with this sense of like, oh, you must love me. This is sense of acceptance. And that gives me freedom to put down the pretense. It gives me freedom to set aside. I'm not worried about the image. God knows me exactly the way I am. Better than anybody else knows me. And he still loves me. And he still paid the price, the penalty for my sin. I say, what could be a greater incentive to authenticity than that what could be a greater incentive to drop the facade and quit fronting than knowing that i'm loved by jesus and what he did for me and so that is such a powerful encouragement that jesus gives us every possible reason to say yeah yeah i'm gonna get real i'm gonna be real
with God. So here's a, here's a step I want to suggest for you to live this out, kind of to play it. What's the next step then for you? Because you could hear about this, you go home and like forget all about it. What's the next step for you? If, if you're like being tugged on right now by God to say, you know what? I, I, I love your authenticity. I just want you to be more. You don't need to, to fake it with me. What's the next step? I think one possible next step, but it's really powerful, is that you make a plan to go talk about this with a mentor. Now, Mike mentioned we have mentors available. If you don't have a mentor, we can, we can connect you with somebody. Go talk about it with a friend, a close friend, somebody that you're open with about stuff. Go talk about it. If you're married, talk about it with your spouse. Or go talk about it in a small group, a group of people who, you know, there's an environment in a small group. There's confidentiality and there's love and trust. And the reason I want you to talk about it is because that brings it to the surface. And those conversations with others are just an important way to move forward, to refocus from outward religion to internal character. I put it on the table. I say, you know what? I have a problem. I, I've, just, I've really been really acting so that people will like me instead of doing the right thing. And you're telling a small group, a mentor, a friend, nobody's, they're not going to say, oh, man, you screwed up. They're going to say, oh, you know what? We love you. We're going to help you do better. Those conversations are an important way to shift from impressing others to honoring God. So I want you to think about that. Pray about who am I going to talk to? To talk about the warnings and the issues that Jesus raised. Am I being a hypocrite? Do I love fame or opinions of others too much? Oh, by the way, and how am I doing on generosity? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, this unconditional love that Jesus has. Thank you, Father, that, that we don't have to fake it with you. We don't have to pretend. We're not trying to, to impress you in some superficial way. Because you know us. You can see right through that. And you know all of the junk in our lives and all the ways we've failed and all the character issues that we haven't mastered and all the, the things we've said and the thoughts that we've had and, and the motives that, that we've had. You know all those and you still love us. You still want relationship with us. And in any real relationship, God, Father, thank you that you invite us and you create a safe space for us to be real be authentic with you. And so, Father, I just want to confess the times I have loved attention and fame and, and loved being noticed in ways that made me fake it. And I just confess, Father, the ways that I've acted out religiously, things that I haven't done in my heart. There's a gap. Sometimes there's a gap. I've been a hypocrite. Father, I pray that you would take each one of us, take me and make my faith real, hone it, that you'd, that you'd refine it, that you'd, that you'd help me to be more authentic with you and with the people close to me and even with the people in my life, to be more authentic and experience 
your real work in our lives. Thank you, Father. Trust you for this. We thank you, Father, that you've done this for us in Jesus. And we pray it in his name for his honor and glory.